0: Well, hello everybody. My name is Damian Shield, and I'd uh, like to welcome you to this open forum, Ask Anything. It's our first in the new format of the weekly webinars, and I'm uh, really excited about the questions that have been submitted in advance. I'm also looking forward to uh, communicating through this platform with my colleagues here in the panel, as well as you all who are watching live the many of you will watch as a recording and that's okay too and we look forward to seeing you at a future weekly webinar. I'd like to just get us started um, by giving you a little background and introducing our team and give you a sense of how we'll be uh, spending the time together. My name is Damian Shield and I'm the Senior Director at the Institute for medical simulation here at CMS. And CMS is an independent nonprofit organization that sits at the center of the Harvard simulation and education community. And uh, one of the things we are really excited about in our reinvention in the peri-COVID moment is that we're all and have always been about solving healthcare and education problems with simulation. Our roots are in patient safety and in simulation and I'm personally really passionate about moving those fields forward and doing so also by faculty development. And Anne and I, uh, Anne's our program manager, and as uh, she and I were launching this uh, series of weekly webinars, and uh, through this period, our hope and goal was to have our community of educators connected while we're socially distant, but also grow it internationally. and. I'm pleased that folks are joining today from India and Thailand, countries that we have had uh, participation from in the past, but not to this extent. So our network is growing and um, we're all learning together. In the evolution of the program, uh, Anne and I were thinking about one of the features of our in-person courses, which is to have a... Open forum discussion where any of the participants' questions get answered. And so that's where we got inspired to have monthly panels with our uh, CMS faculty to really do that, really talk about anything and everything. So, um, over the course of this hour, we'll do welcome and introductions. I'll turn to my colleagues so they can introduce themselves and I'll give you a little bit of my, a little bit more of my background. We'll answer some of the questions that were submitted in advance, but we'll, we don't see ourselves as the only answerers of questions. We really see it as a community discussion. And so we'd like for you to use the Q&A feature of this webinar to comment, not just to ask questions, but to provide your viewpoints. And like any talk show, uh, you, could, you would be calling in on the radio, for example. Since you can't call in, due to the limitations of the platform, we'll ask Anne to read your comments and uh, be your avatar, be your voice. After we answer several of the questions that have already been posed, we'll just have a further open forum and we'll uh, ask you to provide further questions. Susie and Anne were saying in our pre-meeting that perhaps some of you didn't have questions in advance, but will be inspired to, to pose topics or have questions during the session. And uh, ideally we'll have a few, time, few minutes at the end of the session that I can share a few of the future opportunities how the program is developing. So as I mentioned, my name is Damian Shield. I'm an emergency physician and an educator, and I split my time between the Brigham and Women's Hospital, where I see uh, emergency uh, patients and supervised residents and medical students and work in interprofessional teams. And I did that all day yesterday. And um, uh, then the rest of my time, I work with this amazing team. And we uh, focus on developing instructors, educators, facilitators, and uh, focus on designing simulations and debriefing them. I uh, would like to ask uh, Susie, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself with your uh, current role and some of your background. Surely,
1: Susie Kernock-Edgren worked in uh, the hospital for 17 years, academia for 20 years, now back in the hospital as a nurse scientist for Texas Health Resources in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and adjunct faculty at the Massachusetts General Hospital Institute of Health Professions, helping to kick off a master's in simulation operations uh, program and teaching in the doctoral program for MGHIHP HP also. I'm the president-elect of the Anaxil organization, which is the nursing simulation organization and a past editor of clinical simulation and nursing for 10 years, worked in simulation since about 2006. So that's me in a nutshell.
0: Hey, congratulations on, on the election. I didn't know about that. Yeah, congratulations. I had no idea either. Oh. James.
2: Hi, uh, my name is James Lipshaw. I am the uh, instructional designer at the Center for Medical Simulation. Um, In my background, I'm actually an educator and designer by training rather than a clinician specifically. And so a big part of my role is helping to bring sort of educationalist perspective to some of the clinical work that we're doing. And then I work a lot specifically with our online programs. So building sort of multimedia experiences both in our in-person courses and in our online courses now, even more than ever in this moment.
0: Awesome, James. And uh, James participates in our courses, and I asked him specifically to join us on camera as opposed to the backstage. He's the producer of our um, podcast. You might have heard him on DJ Simulation East and some of the other uh, programs that he does, but I, I wanted him on stage with us because he... Uh, It's just such a uh, great voice in how to use technology uh, to get the learning going and uh, really helped us out last week on our online course and a lot of your questions are relevant to that. So James, thank you for joining. Yeah, of course. Anne, my partner.
3: Good morning. My name is Anne Mullen. I'm a nurse. Most of my career I've worked in adult critical care, in education and in simulation. Um, Before I was at CMS, I was the program manager of a simulation center uh, at a community hospital just outside of Boston. Um, My current role at CMS is as the program manager, so I get to help with the planning and logistics of the courses, help in the teaching, and yeah, I'm so excited about last week's course that we got to try out this new online format. Today, Today, I'm going to be your voice. Um, You know, sharing your questions that come up in the Q&A. And really excited to join today.
0: Great, and as I'm looking at the participant list uh, of those who are online, and I see um, some names that I recognize. Uh, Alan Hamilton, Elliot Silverman, uh, Leila, our fellow. So a lot of uh, senior and uh, experienced folks. Um, Folks that you're online now, you feel free to introduce yourselves by uh, typing into the Q&A. Anne will uh, click on those as answered live, so that you can all see who's online. Um, Lauren, I see you there as well. Shane. Uh, everybody can go ahead and type in, if you feel comfortable, um, your background, where you're from, and uh, as Anne clicks those as answered live, it'll be visible to the whole panel. So, welcome everybody. How about if we go ahead and get started? Mm -hmm. um, One of the things that is uh, a source of pride for me is is this program that we've created. And I wanted to let you know, for those of you who are new to the series, that the programs have been archived on our webpage. So if you follow that QR code, you can find the previous sessions. And um, our first question is, well, you're doing an online program, it's online faculty development. Are people accessing these webinars on a synchronous manner or are they taking the convenience of their time and watching them at their convenience and are they watching them all in a row or a little bit at a time? So James, what can you tell us about uh, people using these uh, resources as we're creating them?
2: Um, I can tell you since I'm the person who looks at the analytics that it's about 50-50. So, you know, our webinars will have anywhere a hundred, a little over a hundred people. And then as we put them on, there's a little bit of a long tail as they go on, but we get about the same. So I think I would say about the same number of people access them live as they do look at them on demand.
0: So that's great. We've had like 20 to a hundred people join synchronously and about a similar range online. And uh, so far we've had a great lineup in my view. Uh, Of course, I'm biased. I've been the producer and director and host. Um, Going forward, uh, we'll have some new features and would love your input uh, onto what to feature here. So um, first question uh, for us uh, on the panel, how has CMS Healthcare Simulation Essentials course changed now that it's done online? Um, So traditionally we used to have a monthly course in Boston Uh, that was uh, running for five days, and uh, over 4,000 people have trained in that program, and now since we have a quarantine in Massachusetts and folks can't travel easily uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we moved it online. How is that different? Uh, So let's start with that. So Anne, James, you guys were a part of that course. Uh, I, too, I taught with uh, in that course, Mary Fay was the course director and uh, she and Walter and I and the rest of the team worked together with James and Jenny Rudolph to adapt it and redesign it. And we did our inaugural course this past week. So James, and, how is it different? How is it the same? What was your experience?
2: I would say less different than you would think. Um, you know, we had to think really hard about The elements that are done in a lecture format. Is that worth doing live. Is that something that we can do in a flipped format where it's a recording that you watch and then come in to get your practice reps. Um, So really thinking hard about every element of the course and whether it has to be Exactly the same medium exactly the same format when we move it online Um, and things you know changed a little bit. Some pieces got moved around in the week. But overall, I would say the content is very similar. The activities are very similar and we got very similar reviews at the end of the week so
3: I was thinking about one of the comments that really stuck with me was that when we break out into small Zoom rooms, people felt as though they were sitting around a table as if they were live. It didn't feel as disconnected as you would think it would. We made great connections with people. You felt like you really got to know people over the course of the week. They got a lot out of it and it it didn't seem that the online format was a barrier, and in some ways there were advantages. People were in their own homes; they were able to, you know, take care of their physical needs for rest and, and breaks in a place I, that they felt comfortable. I, I at.
0: remember I remember talking to a participant, and we were asking them like, "So it's so tiring being online for the whole course all day." So the course was nine to five every day uh, on East Coast time, and we ran it uh, like that. And we gave good lunch breaks and thirty-minute breaks in between the afternoon sessions. And I. One participant said, "Oh, it's not tiring. Maybe for you, as the instructors, and I did find it tiring." Uh, she said, "No, no, I'm taking my nap every day uh, during that 30-minute uh, break, and it's beautiful." And so, uh, I think they they enjoyed it and were able to manage. And somebody else uh, said, "You know, with a young infant at home, I couldn't have come to Boston." So there are some affordances there. Uh, I was thinking, uh, I read a uh, there's a very recently published paper. Uh, by colleagues that I, uh, it's been published in Advances in Simulation, and I'll, I'll share with you the, the link here. And I, I read this paper um, kind of around the time, just before teaching the course, I, um, as I'm an editor for this journal, I got a chance to review it in advance, but now it's available, and it's A Practical Guide to Virtual Debriefings, Community of Inquiry Perspective by Adam Chang, Michaela Colby, and the rest of the group, including Walter Epic. And one, of, I, I wanted to show this paper because in this figure where they adapt the model of community of inquiry, they show you that online there's educator presence, us, how tired we are, there's social presence, how we interact and learn with each other, and there's cognitive presence. So I think what James was saying uh, fits in here that, you know, the cognitive presence, what is it that we're learning? A lot of that say the same. learner-centered, clear rules. On the educator side, we brought the same energy and connection and then the social presence we had to really work on. So uh, I thought this model really helped uh, think about that. And this is Open Access Journal. Uh, Check out this paper for further details. I, I think one of the opportunities in redoing the course online was that we could Uh, kind of start anew in a way. So um, when we do courses online, we have a really strong tradition of starting with a simulation that involves everybody. Uh, As uh, Robert Simon used to say, just get everybody in the pool. And that's still for me a strong in-person simulation design principle. I always like to start that way. It gets everybody talking early, participating early, having skin in the game and a shared experience. And we didn't do that online and we didn't suffer for it. So I uh, I, I just think it's uh, an opportunity to try new things. And um, we worked a lot more on the individual uh, and personal projects as opposed to the group cohesion was my sense. And uh, those are some of the ways in which uh, things are changing. The other thing I th- is that James and Mary and Anne designed really fun online simulations and um we had to do that both because we were working online but also because all of us are being demanded to be doing simulation online mm-hmm. and um that way people got a taste of that and while the simulations were were virtual the debriefings were quote, real debriefing. So I thought that was pretty successful.
2: Yeah, I'll, I will say that, um, you know, the, the online simulations, I think, worked very well, not only because, you know, we had put a lot of thought into how do you run these simulations online in an in a environment that is even a little more artificial feeling than the sim lab, necessarily. But of course, uh, the participants and the learners that we had, have the same problem that we had, which is we need to be able to do these simulations in a online settings, so how can we go about doing that? So we were both able to run them through it, give them the experience of being in those simulations as a learner and then also debrief, how do you go about building this in a way that's effective for your learners? Um, And a a shameless plug, uh, next week, Mary Faye and I are leading a three-day course, two hours, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, exactly on this topic, which is transitioning your teaching um, from in-person simulation to online experiential simulation. Um, and there's more information about that on
0: our website. For the, for the deeper dive. Um, what's going on to happen with the advanced course? Well, I'm still hopeful that we can return to in-person courses in the spring. And so it's currently scheduled for April. I am very confident now that if we had to do it online, we could definitely do that. And so Anne and I are putting our heads together with the rest of the team to see if we might uh, add an additional online option online uh, sooner. So, we'll keep you guys posted on that. cool. A lot of people have taken the, what we call the comprehensive course, and then come to the advanced course in the past. One of the things we're thinking is for many of you who have taken our courses, you may want to come to our online course uh, at this point because it's changed so much. There's, we've incorporated the SimZones approach now that Chris Rusin has been working at CMS for over a year, and that's really added a new level of structure, and we've included the With Good Judgment approach to it, so it might be the right time to refresh ideas, get new skills, and um, even for those of you who have taken our initial level course, you might consider coming to the Essentials course. Well, let's move on, I would suggest. and uh, continue with our questions that were sent in in advance. But do feel free to start putting into the Q&A any of your comments, as well as questions you'd like answered during the course of today. So this question um, has been posed to us, how are we social distancing in a tiny sim lab? And as I read this question, I thought to myself, well, I'm currently not working in a tiny sim lab, and I'm really not even sure what uh, you might mean by that. But I took a guess that you're thinking, well, it's a small simulation room that has one patient bay, and you might have five or six or seven clinicians around it. And uh, if I took that scenario, I'm thinking, okay, well, that's uh, that seems too close for comfort in the day and age. And um, you're probably thinking we can't do that and I would think the same. So, I don't have the exact answer for the Tiny Sim Lab, but I'll share with you another open access article from Advances in Simulation, which um, I got a chance to participate with a interprofessional international group, including Luigi Ingracia, um, Cristina Navarro-Diaz, Giorgio Capagna, Stefania Tomada and Esther Leon. Um, these guys are working in Italy and Spain and in um, the UK and we got together to really identify during the epidemic what we needed to do to get reopened and Pierre Luigi and his group in Italy shut down the earliest and opened the earliest because they of course had that first peak in the in Europe and um, got 10 different discussion points for you to look at. I think my sense is you you can reopen simulation safely. We have here at CMS for our local clinical courses, we have strict, we had established a task force to really gather the best information. We needed to use this space safely, which meant really measuring out what is the new capacity What's the ventilation? What are the distances? We had to set the flow of how to enter, make sure there's appropriate PPE. Um, you have to really be ready to post social distancing guidelines and, um, and manage them and, and really speak up about them. We had to manage our staff, changing the shifts, allowing people to work from home. And you have to have a cleaning and disinfection protocol. It's kind of obvious, but you should simulate any new process. Um, but we made that explicit, and we thought it was important here. And um, and we had to. Uh, and then uh, management challenges do do come up with uh, sick leave and new policy implementation, and it's always an opportunity to review your uh, processes and procedures. So take a look at that article for some other ideas, and. Um, Another thing is, I saw this on Twitter yesterday, so I thought I'd bring it here. This group said in their caption, our mannequin is gone, that's not stopping us from simulation. So they created out of pillows and uh, bedding what looks like a mannequin there. And I think this is a great idea. So if you're working in a constrained, tiny space, find a better space, go to a bigger space, break out uh, from the box. Susie, James, Anne, any thoughts on social distance in a tiny lab or anything else related to the SIM program uh, in this new day and age?
1: I have have been watching a lot of the uh, programs on SSH and people are amazingly creative. They're doing some really, really good things. And I have seen um, multi-patient simulations using standardized patients and mannequins um, and pillows like this, because they ran out of mannequins or they've been sent off someplace else to be doing things out in the field. Um, and people are just acting like they're doing sim because the principles are the same. It's the props that might be a little bit different right now and the fact that we're doing them in full PPE, et cetera. So that's what I have seen is that people are just unbelievably creative.
0: So get out of the lab. Um, go outside, go virtual. That's right. Um, f- and for those of you um, listening, what Susie's referring to is the SimConnect listserv for the Society for Simulation and Healthcare, which is available to members through the webpage. So I, I agree, that's been a great resource. And James?
3: So I was thinking about leveraging things that are already existing in our connected hospitals. So our hospitals are issuing you know, standard guidelines. Specifically, I was thinking around things like, you know, usually we have a, a meal break where people are wanting to chat with each other and we have to maintain our caution when people are taking off their masks and eating their lunch. So putting in structures in place to make sure that when people are taking their breaks that they maintain that level of um, awareness and caution. And our hospitals were issuing, you know, posters and guidelines around, around specifically that issue.
0: Yeah, because from a sim safety point of view, I, we just wouldn't want simulation to become the next biogen or a source of an outbreak. And I could see how it would happen because part of creating a great learning environment is helping people let some guards down and uh, feeling comfortable and free. And um, in this case, that would be counterproductive. So makes sense. So one of the questions that has come in is how to blend offline training with online training, especially around procedural skills and how to implement and promote deliberate practice in limited resources or situations and um, Alan Hamilton is, I think, writing similarly here. and so maybe you could represent uh, what he's asking.
3: So I've been reading a lot of these comments on the listserv as well, where people are creating kits to send off to their students where they would be doing demonstrations of skills. Maybe an instructor is on a video demonstrating skills. The students have something at home that they would be practicing with. So his question was related to, to that. How are you approaching task training? Um, you know, creating mail-in packages for students, suturing skills, IV placement. Um, it seems more pre- not very practical for more complex procedures. Um, any ideas about, about that?
1: I heard uh, one place, uh, the, the instructors in the lab being bring out to everybody And the students, the learners are talking her through doing this skill and spotting if she makes an error and calling that out so that that you have, if you can teach it, you know it. So that is one approach that I've seen that sounded like it was pretty um, successful and caused the students to have to really pay attention and get it in their heads what is supposed to be happening. I see James Head nodding, saying, "Yep, yep. I think I, I that that was a really effective way to do this."
3: And then, how do you translate to that, that something more complex, like placing a chest tube or or placing a central line? That seems a little more nuanced. Um, Absolutely, that I, that I don't have a suggest
1: a suggestion for, uh, especially because I don't teach putting in a chest
0: tube. Yeah, I I think. Um, the, the new challenges of our situation that really makes us go back to the drawing board. And I think um, not trying to replicate exactly what w- I would do in person, th- that's a trap I think that I, I can fall into frequently as a designer is, well, let me see how I can do what I was doing before. So instead I would take it as an opportunity. So I would blend offline and online training, whereas in the past I would say, you know, that blending is just too complex. Um, Here I would do that and I might even take advantage of some of the things that the learners were doing informally before. So for example, I remember learning the suture. We had a workshop, we had some formal didactics, but then all of us tied suture string to our pants and we would just practice knots around the course of the day. Um, I'm sure that in amongst trainees in neurosurgery, orthopedics, um, ICU nursing, they have figured out ways to practice the things they need to practice without the equipment there, um, which could even include visualization. I know there's some data on mirror neurons that just thinking through the steps and visualizing actually helps you develop those connections, mm-hmm. and um, and I would and now I mentioned we're all about the sim zones. So zone one, which teaches the skills outside the basic skills outside of context, is my roadmap. And so I would break down the skills. I would think about which are the hard parts that need uh, specific exercising and practicing. I like Susie's approach of the cognitive or the knowledge piece of the procedure. But I think in Alan's question and, and for applied sim, we're interested in not just knowing the steps but being able to do them. Yeah, sim- I, I would sim- add there, Damian. Go ahead. Um,
2: we had a very similar question in the, in the, uh, in the course last week. Um, and I think one thing you can do is potentially think about the way that even a program like Zoom works. Um, You know, we all have our webcams on here, but the webcam doesn't necessarily have to be pointed at your face. So they were asking, you know, I want to be able to evaluate my students doing sutures. And so what if instead of, you know, the webcam pointed at your face, you attach it to one of those flashlight headbands, have it on their forehead, and you're actually watching them do the sutures, and they can hear you in their headphones while you're doing it. So you can Mm -hmm. evaluate what your students are doing without really any additional resources besides rethinking the way that the medium that you're communicating through works. Instead of it showing your face, just have it show your hands. Um, and then you can go through the procedure just like you were standing there looking over their shoulder.
0: Yeah, and I've seen people um, attach, even attach a a, um, a phone and uh-huh. broadcast uh, broadcast this way, or you can just hold it um, on the side, and uh, it, the camera being portable is really helpful. Um, I think I was t- thinking something similar, James, which is asking people to submit logs. Um, I think that would be the even the the lowest resource pen and pencil way of implementing deliberate practice to say to say, have you done a hundred knots? Have you per week? Have you done you know here's some goal setting and really independent practice is going to be the, the main feature as opposed to together learning in the lab with direct supervision. Uh, and another piece I was thinking was submitting recorded videos. So practice 100 times but then do it until you're so happy that you're ready to submit the exemplar and people could drop those into Google Drive or Dropbox and if you want to even go further you could have people do peer review. So things that I think we we didn't focus on before in, in experiential learning through sim labs because we, at least for me, time on task and direct feedback, I, I had higher premium or higher value on that. Now that that's sort of taken away, it's kind of opened my mind to thinking about what are the other learning activities.
1: Well, you know, that there's been an um, opportunity here to truly move from teacher-centered skills teaching to learner-centered skills teaching. And so they are much more aware of what, what steps are hard sometimes than we are. And we think we're really good at explaining. And until you have to do it yourself and there's nobody there to tell you, you don't know what you don't know. So actually, in in the final analysis, the learner should be better prepared and be developing some skills that help them get better at learning other skills in the future.
0: Um, James mentioned the features of Zoom. You could do breakout rooms and do pairs or trios, and you could supply rubrics, uh, especially for communication skills, which you could think of as a procedure, like ask these five questions or... Um, you know, disclose bad news in this or that way, do a sexual history in this way. You could have people practice those that skill with a rubric, with peer feedback. Uh, that could be another way to cause deliberate practice. Okay, let's keep us going here. Uh, any tips for success in bringing more academics into working with simulation modalities other than role play? And any tips for developing immersive online scenarios on a shoestring budget? So do you outsource or bite the bullet, do yourself? Some might, two different questions from uh, um, one group, so. James, Susie, you wanna tackle either one of these?
1: I'm not sure I understand the question. Any tips for success in bringing more academics into working with simulation modalities other than role play? Um, Are they, I'm trying to understand what that means, is that they're trying to bring in people who haven't done this before and get them started and they're trying to get them to role play? What does that mean? I'm not quite sure.
0: My read on the question is, Um, We have a lot of faculty who are primarily researchers or academics, not clinicians. But how do we, how could we bring them into into teaching with simulation?
3: And if the person that submitted that question is online, you can type your clarification. Give us a little more
1: information. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would say that there is a free set of classes from Coursera called Essentials in. Essentials in Clinical Simulation Across Health Professions. It was sponsored by George Washington University. It's free. It's meant for people around the world. And you can pick them, the ones that you want to do. You don't have to do them in order. You don't have to do all of them. But there's a very good what is simulation, how to debrief, how to write a scenario. So they're quick down dirty by people who know what they're talking about. Um, there's there's that available for people to look at before they walk into the situation. It makes sense to me that you should see somebody or be with somebody to do it a few times. And um, uh, maybe set role, uh, set questions for debriefing those first few times because we've all seen a newbie, a new uh, sim person have a horrible experience with students and students, they're a lot of times pretty savvy to sim if somebody's pretty new and and this person is not doing it the way they're used to seeing it done they do not like it they do not learn as well Um, and it it can turn into not a good situation so it's better to be with somebody when you're learning i'm thinking it's been my experience for sure over many many years i'm curious what other people have to say And I would throw one more thing in there when you're new. I think it's always good to ask for grace and to give grace is that when you start off with, I'm learning, um, let's give it a shot, give me feedback. I'll give you some feedback as students and let's make this work together. Cause we're, we're in a new world and we're all trying new things. I think people will forgive a lot of mistakes if it is c- approached in that manner.
0: I would think we're in a very forgiving time right now, too, Susie, and um, and I, I've seen that. You know, I, I was always almost taking going to take a different approach. Uh, I got asked this question in the course last week, and about how you know how do you build your your team? How do you get people to want to teach with Sim? How do you get them to um, try something new, et cetera? And my answer to this person was don't sell them the opportunity to do simulation offer them the opportunity to solve a problem and um because simulation is new and scary to folks and it's it, taking them out of a comfort zone and that's sort of like a new thing they have to want to do but if you say let's improve clinician teamwork and communication let's let's have a meeting on how we're going to do that and then you talk about sim as a way to do that. Um, I I think you can get more interest online and more people um, to do that. And um, So uh, the
3: other thing that I was thinking of specific to sort of bringing more people to join you is by asking them to help you in different ways. So if I were developing a new simulation, I might ask the faculty to help me by being the learners in that simulation so that they can give me feedback. You know, I just want to dry run this scenario. Can you just show up and be in the scenario? I just want your help. So then they get to experience what it's like and might get excited about it. Um, And it's a good way for you to do your dry run.
2: So it's a win-win in my opinion. Would you want to go back a few slides, Damien? I just wanted to address the second bullet point on that one for a minute. Okay, Um, sounds good. So the question is, uh, do you have any tips for developing immersive online scenarios on a shoestring budget? Um, I think it's important when we think about, you know, what is immersive, if you're thinking about it, like I want to, as much as possible, eliminate sort of the feeling of this being artificial, then the simulation that you're doing online has to use that that medium of being online is like part of the core simulation. So for example, you could do a simulation around telemedicine, virtual checkups, things like that. So using the medium where it's not artificial, I'm doing the thing that I would be doing. I'm looking at a standardized or simulated patient over this, and I'm trying to do my, you know, my telehealth simulation. So that is the only way you're going to get a really, truly deeply like immersive, high fidelity simulation online. Now, you can still have a really strong like piece of conceptual fidelity in an online simulation. And I think the way to do that is, again, just to pre-brief in the same way that you pre-brief around being in the simulation lab and say, look, this is not exactly real. The vital signs are not going to feel exactly like the vital signs feel on a person. You may just have to ask us in the room, like, I can't tell what's going on here with the pulse. Can you tell me? Um, I'm not sure if I feel a pulse here. And that's what we've been doing. So, you know, we bring up the vital signs, but obviously you can't put your hand on the patient in an online scenario. So it's like, you know, I feel for a pulse. What do I feel? Well, you feel X and Y and Z. Um, Or I want to listen to breath sounds. And maybe we actually have an audio file of breath sounds and we play that and you hear it and you have to analyze it yourself. It's like, well, I heard that, but I wasn't sure if I was hearing wheezing in this or if I was hearing something else. And am I hearing it bilaterally? Am I only hearing it on one side? So you know, you have to, again, as Susie said, provide a little bit of grace uh, and ask for a little bit of grace. And I think it can work out pretty well. Mm -hmm. And as Damien showed there, you can do live vitals right on the screen in the moment um, and change them live on the screen in the moment. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So I think it's, uh, again, in terms of undoing what we used to do, I think before I was focused on there should be a monitor and the authentic activity is everybody should be looking at a monitor, interpreting a waveform, and it should look like a real monitor. But really the interest is, can they look at a set of parameters and make an inference about what is changing? And so I can just give the text data with the, as James said, with the pre-briefing to say, look, in the real world, you're not going to get the vitals like this. Although, you know, this kind of like, it looks like just like in the, e, in the electronic health record. So, you know, we're just interpreting data. as it coming through your page? And or you're looking it up on the computer and, and what would you do next? And you can, instead of having a, uh, a moving image of an actor or a, a mannequin that's breathing in front of you, you have a still picture of a patient. In fact, um, the the still photos that we're using for simulation look better than the mannequins in some cases. And so. Um,
2: I would also add, um, in terms of you know one thing that we've heard is people are sort of afraid that the students won't be activated or they won't be engaged in these simulations and we found that that's very much not the case. Um, The thing that I've noticed in sort of the debriefs that we've done of these is most effective is providing a voice for the patient especially in the online environment so if you have a picture of a patient you say okay these are their vital sounds these are their vital signs Um, their breathing starts to get distressed and then you actually have Someone there, maybe with their camera off, maybe with their camera on, in you know, in a in a in a johnny and sitting on a bed somewhere, and they're showing that distress. That is very activating, um, and we found that it, it, the learner seemed to really enjoy it and are and are activated by it. And are, and the response we get is, uh, you know, when I heard the patient in distress, even though it was a virtual setting, I was suddenly like, okay, I'm in. We have got to make this person better. Uh, we got to fix, find out and fix whatever's going on here. So.
1: And if I may say that is a really rich research opportunity because we've gotten really married to mannequins in a lot of cases. And if you have a backstory that people can read before they come to the scenario about the person and their life and what it was like, and then you either use a mannequin or a standardized patient or a simulated patient, Um, I'm very curious about that activation piece and how much that helps them um, retain what they have learned in that scenario. So that has not been done yet that I have seen, and I think it would probably be very, very enlightening for a lot of us.
2: So I see Alan Hamilton's put another question in the Q&A about guiding faculty into sort of creating intimacy and group adhesion, remote teaching new skills. Um, I would very much encourage you to, uh, Kate Morse and Mary Fay did a webinar all on this topic um, that's available in our CMS weekly webinar. so I would encourage you to check that one out. Um, it's also the topic of the course, the more intense course we'll be teaching next week. Um, I will say, I think the thing we've most been trying to encourage people to understand faculty is that they already have all the skills that they need. It's just about transitioning the medium, um, and then in terms of intimacy and group adhesion, I'm trying to break down a little bit of the barrier between you know, being the lecturer and being the student, in the, but very much in the same way that we try to run our debriefings, which is to say, you're not a lecturer there to give them this information, you're a person taking part in a conversation. Um, and in terms of the intimacy and creating that, that social presence, we think that that's very effective.
0: Yeah, I I think reflecting on the question and my experience, um, I think guidance for faculty, for our team, it was really critical to have several meetings in advance and kind of reacquaint ourselves to working together and trying, you know, if the ways we were used to working in person, how did those match up? I think in terms of working with the learners and the group cohesion, I and I like that paper I showed at the beginning. That um, in terms of using the community of inquiry model, I it, I I, re, I, re, I recognize that I started out thinking that there is like one best way to be engaged online, and that's with the camera on and centered in the middle and always on and always looking and. And I think that's off. I think part of what you want to do with your faculty is release them from holding that standard and encouraging them to let the learners do what they need to do. Just like in a, in a classroom setting, I would encourage people to get up when they need to and stretch out. In Zoom, I would just encourage people to turn off their video when they need to rest their eyes or do something so they can remain engaged. If somebody, you know, needs to have a, um, a virtual background, you know, I think it can sometimes look a little weird, but if they're going to be more comfortable being present because you can't see what's behind them, then let them do that. If you, um, or in this case, you know, encourage your faculty to let them do that. Yeah. So James is demonstrating virtual mm-hmm. background. I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to let people put a virtual background of themselves and then step off camera. <laughs> uh, I, I I have heard that strategy here amongst our, uh, our students. And uh, you can even do a little gif with a movement of the head to make it really look, but that, you know, that just goes beyond. But um, just letting people um, do what they need to do to be able to be there. I think that's that's important. Um, And um, I think new skills, what are the new skills? I I do think uh, sharing your screen, letting other people share their screens, doing a breakout, they're kind of technical. Um, I think we have create, Zoom and other vendors provide guides. I think People don't tend to invest in reading those guides, which is good. It's fine. I mean, on the one hand, there's two types of people: those who need to read the manual first, then open the box and install their VCR. If you're old enough to know what I'm talking about, uh, or other people like me, open the box, connected, and then see where you get stuck. I think in, in the spirit of being of uh, folks being quite uh, uh, forgiving. I, I think just start with Zoom and discovering in the moment makes you vulnerable and open. And uh, uh, I just don't think it has to be like so fully polished and perfect, oh. uh, so as to make it stale and uh, and strict.
2: I will say, as as uh, the instructional designer, um, I will say that the number one thing I often say to faculty is the best thing that you can do in order to understand like what is possible in this online space is to read the manuals read the documentation you know if you need to do a um like an online course on how do i do x and y and z in zoom like having that knowledge will really when you come to the table like to sit down with me and say i want to do x and y and z you'll have a better understanding of what that's going to take because sometimes i get a question and it's can i do this And I say, yeah, that takes five minutes. It's no problem. And sometimes, can I do this? It's, yeah, that's going to take like a hundred thousand dollars and a dedicated research team. Um, So knowing sort of what the scope and limitations are of the platform yourself when you go to sit down with an instructional designer is really, really helpful. I will also say dealing with technological tasks when you're trying to also teach a course for the first time is a really high cognitive load activity. And so simulate, 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 do do not let going on with your class of a hundred students or 12 students or two students be the first time that you have run through the course online for our webinars, for our online courses, we do a full technical walkthrough, Um, not the full length of the course, but at least going through the slides, making sure that, Everything is there, everything is working, anywhere from a day to a week before the course runs. So do a full technical simulation, do a walkthrough, make sure that you know how stuff works, not just that you know how it works, but you can do it with low cognitive load when it comes time to actually do it rather than struggling with, wait, is this how I do this? I don't remember, was I supposed to click this button? Was I not supposed to click this button? And how many kind times like have we, we ask our
1: students to do in simulation when we're standing over them watching them.
3: <laughs> exactly. So, right.
1: It's the same thing.
3: We've run into glitches so many times during our technical walkthroughs and we'll always say, well, we're glad this is the technical walkthrough so that we have time to fix this. Yeah. We're never sorry that we've done a rehearsal. <laughs> no.
1: And I think it's really important to remember that the people that are being asked to to do a lot of these things right now are the people who said they would never teach online and they were never going to do STEM. And they've got two things a lot of times happening at the same time. So that cognitive load is very high for them. And so um, for those of us who it seems maybe much simpler than it used to, it is not simple for them and they're under a lot of stress. And so again, grace is really important.
0: So uh, one last question uh, came from India, a group of faculty in a nursing school. So maybe start with Susie and Anne. Uh, What are your tricks to encourage nursing students to apply patient safety to their work? And I think they mean in, in simulation and in their clinical setting. As I heard the question, it seemed like there was a separation between content and the field of patient safety. So, what's being taught in the nursing school might be theory and um, out of context. And they mean patient safety. They mean must mean something by that construct. So,
3: I'm. Any I'm thinking, thoughts come to mind? I'm thinking of myself as a nursing student a million years ago. When I was, I, well, it was actually 40 years ago. I don't think it was a
0: million years ago.
3: (laughs) 40 years ago. (laughs) I remember thinking of my nursing faculty as someone who I wasn't supposed to make mistakes in front of. And instead, if we could sort of change that to say, as humans, there's going to be some things that are going to cause us to make mistakes. Let's talk about that. So for example, you can be as careful as you want when you're preparing medications. If someone comes up and asks you in the middle of your medication preparation, if someone comes up and asks you a question, that's an opportunity for a mistake. So shifting the onus of preventing mistakes to more of a we're all trying to prevent mistakes to you're a bad student because you made a mistake. Um, And really having some explicit examples about the things that can cause us to make mistakes. What do you think?
1: I'm thinking that I have, I like what you just said, Anne, and that we're approaching simulation um, as a way to think about those things in the real world too. And that this is real life in the hospital. How do we simulate that here? If somebody walks up and starts talking to you, what are your strategies for dealing with that? Do we uh, we have the vest that says, don't talk to me while I'm doing this? Or can I stop them and say, please stop talking to me right now. I'm doing these things. Please, you know, uh, come back later, uh, approach somebody else. But um, giving people the opportunity to practice the way it's really going to be and realizing that um, it's as close as we can get. And it's such a great environment to practice these strategies in before they get to the real world. And be prepared for those things that they might not realize are going to happen for them.
3: I like that. And I'm thinking if we're we're creating scenarios where natural mistakes are going to happen, to talk about those as, well, what is it about our brains that make us make those mistakes? So that we're talking Uh about during the debriefing, rather than saying to the person, here's the five things that you did incorrectly. I'm going to let you try it again. They don't Uh know what mental error might have led to that, that action. So really trying to um, you know, turn mistakes into opportunities to think about real life prevention and then practicing it in the simulation. I was exactly thinking what you said, Susie, is you know, you're doing a medication administration practice session in simulation. Give people an opportunity to politely say, I'm sorry, I can't answer your question right now. I'm doing an important medication calculation or something like that, giving people a yes. chance to practice that in simulation.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, I had
0: a I similar, similar have oh, go ahead, Susie. No, go ahead. I had a similar idea that, that had to do with, let's also talk about it in the debriefing and not just hope for safety behaviors, but actually talk about what that means. Um, one of the things that's been just very compelling for me is the safety two movement where safety isn't the absence of error but rather the recovery and resist and resilience in people and in the system this connects back to and your comment around making a mistake so making a mistake but catching it and recognizing it and then correcting that's how safety is sustained because the humans we're just that imperfect that um you know, I could just think of so many different things that worked out yesterday during my shift, but not on the first go around, whether I got reminded or somebody else got reminded uh, or a patient or a patient family member made the suggestion. Those are, in, those are the, that's the resilience of the system that we ought to be looking for rather than the, you did this right, you did this wrong. So uh mm-hmm a mindset there, as I guess, summary, a mindset of resilience and talking about it and an explicit um, discussion of the construct and skills in the debriefing would probably be two ways which, of doing it. Which raises
1: the question on our checkoff sheets. I don't remember seeing very often a thing at the bottom that said realized error and was able to recover. Because in real life, if you make a mistake learning a skill, nobody pops out and says, you failed. What happens is you're standing there alone in a room with the patient and you realize, okay, I've made a mistake. What am I supposed to do now? How do I recover from this? So having people actually do it in simulation or as they're learning the skill makes a whole lot more sense to me than just ending it right there and saying you failed. Right. It is It is the antithesis of everything we actually want them to learn to do. So thanks for bringing that up.
0: So I'd like to start to wrap up our session um, with a little bit more of an update uh, and some next steps. So uh, we mentioned before this program got started during COVID-19, but we're really enjoying it. And many of you have uh, shared how valuable it has been. So for now, we're intending to keep it going. We have a little bit of a summer break here in the northern hemisphere through the uh, rest of August and a couple of weeks in, in what we call the end of summer uh, through mid-September. Uh, we do have some new formats. So the open forum, Ask Anything, we're going to have these sessions uh, every month. We're trying to time them to be right after we do a course so that if any open questions in our, on our online courses come up, we can then answer them here and have some regularity and we'll be featuring different faculty from the CMS uh, extended community which includes uh, simulation leaders and educators internationally as well as in our affiliates in uh, different from different affiliates and uh, we're also doing session called meet the authors so um, a lot of us are quite involved in scholarship whether it's writing or editing or uh, other forms of scholarship, and we have a lot of personal connections, so we'd like to leverage that to bring you discussions with authors. My vision for this is that we'll be reviewing some of the work that they have written, but also talking to them about how they defined that project, what went into it, what didn't make it into the manuscript, what are the next steps, what they might do differently, and um, and so you, I'd love for uh, you to propose or request us to bring authors uh, so that, because that would help me uh, let them know that you're interested in their work. So please feel free to use the Q&A or the evaluations that you'll get in a minute or two once you sign off to, um, to give us those ideas. And we'll also be doing some specialized workshops like feedback workshops, difficulty briefing, psychological safety. So the next session is going to be on September 16th. Uh, that's going to be Meet the Author with Jeff Cooper, and uh, we'll be talking with him about uh, one of his recent manuscripts, and uh, we'll be sending out more information about that. It's about an old, old case of a patient safety report that he's recently written up, and I think uh, will take us through a lot of the history of simulation with Jeff Cooper, who's uh, really a founder in the field and uh, was the founder and executive director of CMS until he Uh, stepped off from that. Um, A lot of other opportunities, as uh, James mentioned, we have Teach Online, Engage with Confidence next week. You can register for that on our website. We have the Healthcare Simulation Essentials course, which uh, has a wait list for September, and there's openings in October, November, and December. Dash Raider Training Workshop, which is a peer faculty development for our session. And then our feedback course, which I'm really excited about, which is um, not for simulation educators. It's for your colleagues who you want to have a structured conversation, hold the basic assumption, use advocacy inquiry, reflect on their practice. Um, You could recommend that course or consider it for yourselves for anyone who's kind of not quite ready for sim, but really interested in these ideas. So do join us online and hopefully in person in the near future. Uh, Mary, myself, the rest of the team at CMS, uh, we'd be happy to partner with you to uh, do something also tailored or specialized, whether it's a needs assessment or build a program or do some faculty development, and you can reach us through our website. Um, We'd be happy to meet with you for a a 30-minute needs assessment and get that started. So thank you so much for joining, and uh, have a great brief summer break be in touch, and we'll see you at the next one. Susie, James, and my gratitude uh, for both what you're joining and contributing, but also to spend some time with you. It's always nice to see you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody.